Marketing Justified, Episode 3. Dignity Justified illuminates African-American images, ideas, and individuals. Hi, I am Anita. And I'm Calvin. In this episode, we interview poet and author Carol Boston Weatherford, a New York Times bestselling author who has written over 40 books. Let's get started. Good morning, listeners. If you have a middle schooler in your family, chances are he or she has read the book, Sink or Swim, African-American Lifesavers of the Outer Banks by today's guest, Carol Boston Weatherford. It tells the story of a pre-Coast Guard situation. It's actually the story of the U.S. life-saving service that operated off Pea Island, and that's on the coast of North Carolina. And that mission was led by a Richard Etheridge. It's a very, very important story because he was the first African-American to command that station. And Professor Weatherford, I want you to know, it was always a fight to get that book because social studies teachers wanted it because it's a historic story. And science teachers wanted it because it talks about storms that have bombarded and plagued the East Coast of North Carolina. So it's a highly recommended book. So if you haven't had a middle schooler who's read that, most probably have come across a book or two or three or four or five or more by our guest. And if by chance you have not read her books or seen her books after our conversation with author Carol Boston Weatherford, you will want to include her titles as part of your household's collection. And indeed, Carol has earned NAACP Image Awards, a Coretta Scott King author honor, and many other honors. When she isn't pausing for awards, you will find her teaching as a professor of English at Fayetteville State University in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We welcome poet and author Carol Boston Weatherford. Hello, Carol. Hello. Thanks for having me, Calvin and Anita. Hello. It's a real joy, a real joy and honor to to have you a part of uh, as a part of this dignity justified experience. So let's begin with the creativity part of Carol and how she does what she does. Sometimes for a lot of us, we can be moved by a particular person, a particular place, a particular idea as a call to action, let's call it something that energizes us and prompts us to do something. So what prompted you, Carol, to create poetry and use that genre to write books? I think it was the language-rich environment in which I was raised. Uh, I was the daughter of educators. There was always a grandmother in the house because my mother's mother lived with us most of the time, and my father's mother lived nearby, and I saw her almost every day as well. So there was that storytelling tradition and my mom was the daughter of a minister. And so there was, you know, that black church tradition as well. So I was really steeped in oral traditions, but also exposed to books at a very early age and, and throughout my childhood. As I said, my parents were both educators. My mother was a high school counselor and later an administrator. And my dad was uh, an industrial arts teacher and later an administrator. And as luck would have it, after I dictated my first poem to my mother in first grade, 
and continued to write more poems, my mother asked my father if he would have his students print some of my early poems on the printing presses in his classroom. So at a very early age, before the dawn of desktop computers, laptops, or laser printers, <laughs> I got to see my work in print, which was a thrill. It was I did not see it in print in book form. My poems were printed on card stock the size of index cards, but they were it was in print just the same. So that did not make me want to become an author because I didn't know that that was even a, a possible career track at that time. But it did encourage me to write more poetry. And my teachers at All Black Edgewood Elementary School in Baltimore also encouraged me quite a bit as well and let me know that this gift that I had was something special. Wow, really inspiring, Carol. Nothing like having a gift, having a talent, and having an environment with your parents and your grandparents and teachers and extended family that nourishes that seed that is that is so inspiring, as I mentioned. Thank you. Yeah, it's very it's very important. I believe that the seed of who a child can become is in them from day one and it's up to the adults in their lives, the parents, the, the caregivers, the, the educators, the neighbors, you know, the, the village to nurture that seed so that the child can blossom into their full potential. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's why when you visit homes, you see the little paintings all on the refrigerator held on by magnets because we try to illuminate and celebrate the gifts and the interest of children so that they know that they are loved and cared for and celebrated. Great story. That's, so that's really to- important. And in fact, my son and I, my son came up with the term, the gallery of the refrigerator. Okay. And, and it actually inspired me to write a poem called The Gallery of Cool, which is about the about that. Mm-hmm. But but it really and it really comes from my belief that all children deserve opportunities to demonstrate excellence. And, you know, it used, it can happen, you know, in the classroom, you know, in the form of a bulletin board or a gold star or an opportunity to speak before the class. It used to happen all the time in the black church, you know, in Sunday school, everybody right. had to have their little piece that they had, right. had to recite at the Christmas program or the and Easter, Easter program. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, in fact, that's how I have a book about, about Oprah Winfrey. And it's, mm-hmm. it's about just that, how she got her start at age three, speaking in church. So, you know, all children need opportunities to demonstrate and, and deserve opportunities to demonstrate excellence. All kids learn different ways. We all, all kids have different gifts, but they all deserve, you know, that same opportunity to demonstrate excellence, however they excel. That just jarred a memory for me. I think about Thanksgiving when blessings are offered. In our family, we always have an older person to grant the blessing. And lately, it has been the oldest brother, Rufus, but we always ask a child to grant the blessing because that teaches and it gives them an experience to share their their feelings and their thoughts about being with family. So that is just so true. Every opportunity possible, whether that occurs in spiritual form, family form, schools, wherever, give children a voice, let them be heard, first of all, and let them be celebrated. So I have two questions and I'll start with a fun question. In your book, Becoming Billie Holiday, the reader learns about her names, from the spelling of her last name to obtaining stage names. And we also learn about the importance of persona. In the poem, Sophisticated Lady, you share some advice from Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington, of course, being the great composer, 
pianist, just a, a wonderful, talented person. The last stanza has Duke gave singers sound advice, slip on a stage persona and stick with it. So, Professor Weatherford, while in writer's mode, have you ever conjured up a special name, a handle, a moniker, or a persona? And if not, what name would someone in your family use to capture the essence of your gift for words? All right, I have been given two names besides my, you know, my my birth name. And I'll tell you first the African name that I was given when I was about 19 years old, and the name was Maimuna, and it means expressive. So that's, but I've never, I've never been called by that name. I, you know, mm-hmm. I went to a naming ceremony and I got the name and that was the end of that. And then my students have given me a name. I teach a hip hop class. And, and so my students have to, in our icebreaker exercise in the first class, I have them come up with their name, the name that they would have if they were rappers. And my students have given me a name as well. And my name is C.B. Dub. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Dove as as in D O V E bird? D U B Dub as oh in, yeah as in W so C B W C B Dub okay but okay. Dub being you know a form of a form of rap as well Dubbing. Dub yes yes okay all right and the other question is Billy Holiday's life I'm telling you I picked the book up. I put it down. I pick it up again. And I spent a lot of time thinking about her, thinking about the blues and thinking about so many stories that are touching and moving, sometimes tragic, sometimes hard reads, but they're important stories. So I'd like to know a little bit about how difficult it was for you to accentuate and tell her story uh, in a dignified manner and a manner that talks about perseverance, but is still true to the many struggles that she endured? I don't know if it was hard at all, because Billie Holiday is my muse. Mm -hmm. So when I was, and and I, before ever deciding to write about her, I I kind of felt like I already knew everything about her. I mean, you know, not everything, but I knew so much about her already. I did do, you know, quite a bit of additional and intentional research before writing the manuscript. But as I was working on it, it was a very magical process that has not been repeated to this day. And early on, I decided that the poems were going to be titled after her songs, just like mm-hmm. the chapters in her autobiography are titled after her songs. And I had actually forgotten about that when I made the decision. But but anyway, they're titled after her songs. And what I would do is I would research a certain episode of her life using the various sources that I had. And then I would look at her discography and look for a song title that evoked that episode. So the lyrics didn't have to, the lyrics of the song didn't have to have anything to do with that episode of her life. So her birth poem is entitled, Why Was I Born? So what I would do is look at that list, the, the discography, choose a song title that reflected that episode of her life, write it on the paper. And then it was almost as if the poem just flowed out of me. And the whole process, as I said, was very magical and mystical. It was as if Billie Holiday was whispering in my ear or humming in my ear as I wrote this book. And it took me about six or eight weeks to write 100 poems in her voice. And that's just unheard of. I don't typically write that fast. 
And it, it wasn't until after the book was published that a friend of mine, a former roommate, suggested that I had channeled Billie Holiday. And that was the first time that I ever, you know, thought about maybe some channeling does go on. So I, you know, so I think that was definitely, you know, in effect when I was writing that book. I hope I answered your question. You did. It's, it's just a wonderful read. It's lyrical. Uh, just going through the, the titles, Say It Isn't So, themes like Mercy, Ghost of Yesterday. And you just take a journey through her life and you experience family life. In your book, you talk about influences in the family, particularly the mother and father, of course, but the jazz musicians and the family of talented people who influenced her. Just a wonderful, wonderful read. But but for me, there were so many times I felt so deeply for her, but I turned the page and, and the humor is just wonderful. So I enjoyed that immensely. I really did. And yes, you did answer the question. And I just, you you know, I just really wanted to, the way I approached it is I wanted to depict her in a way that I thought she might want to be remembered. So that didn't mean leaving out the, you know, the sad stuff or the tragic stuff, but it meant presenting it in a way that would cultivate empathy on the part of the reader. And so that that was my goal. Well, it, your goal was your mission was accomplished because there's so much truth in that journey, and it's revealed in such an honest manner. And that's what I've enjoyed about many of your books. There are stories that sometimes can be maybe we feel deeply for the character, but we know that that's what we experience sometimes in life when we talk about the triumphs. Sometimes we have to mention the tragedies, but the essence of what you're trying to do is to tell the history and to tell the truth so that there's a message, an important story being told. So I really appreciate that in your books. Thank you. And you know, that's an excellent segue, Anita and Carol, into my question, history and truth. Carol, this year marks 100 since the Tulsa Race Massacre, and you have authored the book Unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre. The first word in its title is unspeakable. And of course, there's going to be a lot of a lot of recognition of that very tragic event in American history, as well as African-American history that happened there in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. So my question has to do with using the word unspeakable and the contents of the story, which, by the way, the words and the illustrations in your works that I've read just they, they complement each other so well. How might families, communities and institutions use this book, Unspeakable Tulsa Race Massacre, as a portal for understanding some of today's incidents and issues? What are your thoughts? Thank you for that question, Calvin. When I write books about the African-American freedom struggle, and I'm writing about the past, not just so young readers can learn about the past, but because the past is, as they say, is prologue. You know, you can, you can connect the events of the past to the events of the future. The, the events of Tulsa are, you know, it's the same thing that's going on when Officer Chauvin, I think that's how you pronounce Chauvin, in, in Minneapolis, put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Right. You know, 300 people didn't die, but 
you know, it, it's it's equally tragic and equally shocking. It's it's that the brutality is coming from the same place. Right. So it, it, I think it's important to rehash the historical events because they provide context for what's for what is going on today. Hmm. So you mentioned the the events leading up to the the massacre you you mentioned the the official inquiry that happened some 75 years later before the government the state government or local government or US government was even willing to acknowledge that it was a massacre right i don't i don't guess there were any fingerprints left by then huh <laughs> yeah how about that how about that well, really fascinating work. And again, I was equally moved by the artwork and the illustrations that complemented the, the actual verbiage, the context, uh, yeah, the Blake content. Cooper is the illustrator. And coincidentally, he's also the illustrator of Becoming Billy Holiday. So the book Unspeakable is our second collaboration. Gotcha. Well worth the time and energy. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. So speaking of historic events, I think you've also offered a critique about depictions of African-Americans in some forms of Japanese cartoons. So I was first introduced to the, the manga or what we would call the graphic novels of Japanese cartooning and anime, which obviously is about animation. But I watched my godson sketch and he watched Dragon Ball Z. I didn't know anything about Dragon Ball Z, but he was obsessed with it. And many years later, many seventh graders seemed to enjoy the stories because they were not as simple as some of the cartoons uh, that I grew up with. You know what was going to happen with the Road Runner, and you you knew the lines for Bugs Bunny. But these were very very in depth conversations, and they seemed to love uh, the fantasy involved. They also loved. Um, how the creature, not the creatures, but the characters seem to be a little bit more flamboyant, I think, than what we would see in American cartoons. However, recently a nephew made me aware of a figure known as Mr. Popo. And when I looked at Mr. Popo, I thought, oh my goodness. And I would describe him as an a rotund painted blackface genie. So if you think about a spinning top, for example, he has the shape of a spinning top and he looks as though he's a blackface minstrel or character. He has uh, wide eyes and exaggerated lips. Now, of course, from what I understand, Mr. Popo is very intelligent, but I'm talking about images and how those images are demeaning and stereotypical in terms of how African-Americans are viewed. And there are other critiques. We know that sometimes women are highly sexualized. And when it comes to portraying African-American women, you may have them as over-sexualized. However, they do they do not focus on beauty as they as they would sometimes with other ethnic groups. So I know that you have some thoughts on on some of these characters. So what were your concerns about many of these images? Actually, that the article that I wrote many years ago, I think it was in, in 2000 or 1999, came about because on a Christmas morning, my family was watching cartoons while I fixed breakfast. And during that time, I was a newspaper columnist. I had a weekly column, and I also contributed on a freelance basis to newspapers. And my mother and then husband said, 
Look at that character. That character looks like a Sambo. And it was not, I don't think it was Mr. Popo. It was Jinx from Pokemon. Mm-hmm. They said, that character looks like a, a Sambo. You should write about that. And so I did. And that article kind of took on a life of its own. I did mention Mr. Popo in the article as well, because he was also a blackface looking character. Now, granted, these characters originated in Japan. And I I can't, you know, I don't profess to be in the minds of the creators of Pokemon or Dragon Ball Z. So I don't know what was in their minds when they created these characters, but everything doesn't translate well, you know, across the ocean. And in the case of those two, two characters, for me, and at least for my mother, you know, who grew up at a time when the book of Little Black Sambo was still in circulation, it, you know, it, it reeked of a Sambo character. So I did write the article. It took on a life of its own. And actually in Pokemon circles, because uh, there's been one episode of Pokemon that was withdrawn after, uh, supposedly as a result of my article, I'm quite, quite hated in Pokemon circles. And, and internationally, I may be better known for that, for that one article than I may be for my 60 books. So again, I don't know what was in the creator's intent, but I do know how it was interpreted by my mother and interpreted by my, by then, my then husband and by me. And it was not, as you said, it was not a complimentary kind of depiction. And mm-hmm. so I, I questioned it and eventually some changes were made. Rightfully so. And I think because of your work, because of your critique and your writings, I think the Jim Crow Museum also has addressed some of these characters. And it's just important to to place it maybe in historical context. Uh, if we look at the prevalence of American cartoons, uh, we know that they used a lot of Stephen Foster's music. So this would be from the 1930s to maybe the, the 1960s. And Americans um, saw African-Americans who were depicted as buffoons, as slaves, as minstrels, generally in the South. And so Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, and especially I think it was Merry Melodies. So the music was, you know, it was nice. The music was sometimes, I guess it seemed classical, but it's about the images. And those images are so important. And I appreciate the fact that my nephew brought this character to my attention. And then I discovered uh, your critique is so important because Dignity Justified talks about images. It is the images that that help us to understand ideas and values and beliefs uh, about individuals. So right, that exactly. critique, although someone may find it annoying that you said something, it is one's voice that we have to use to protect children. It makes me think about my little ma. I grew up on the East Coast of North Carolina in Williamston. And growing up, my mother Ruth Speller told us how she was bothered by uh, spending her money downtown. And when she passed a, a storefront, they had a display of dolls and the dolls were adorable, of course. But the black doll was the person who was portrayed as the mammy pushing the other little dolls, the white dolls. Oh my and uh, she immediately, because she loved children, she she was a head teacher at a, a Head Start. And we, it was just a house full of kids. And, and just like you mentioned, being in an extended family, we had my papa there, but she was always concerned about how we were portrayed and seen in images. And so she decided to write that department store and demand that the image 
you know, the, the display be readjusted, that they do something about it. Because her point was every little child who walks by sees that the little African-American doll is to be a servant to the others. She can't have a life where she plays right, and frolics right. about with the other children. She has to be the maid. So I really, really was surprised when I saw that. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is someone who has a voice and young people will listen and appreciate it. And it's almost like you're the gatekeeper of of the images and the history. And despite the fact that maybe some of the individuals who look at the cartoons feel that here's someone ruining our fun, it is our job to to be a voice of, of reason. Right. And I think it's not it's not the intent of the of the perpetrator necessarily that matters so much. It's the harm that can be done by you know by people who who are, are offended by it or whose self esteem can be can be damaged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so, so true. I mean, and, and it's you know we could we could talk that same way about people who want to fly the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter about your pride or your heritage. It matters you know what it symbolizes for people who were harmed by it. Exactly, exactly. I can remember I had a show in Southern Illinois and I had the little book, Little Black Sambo. Well, Professor Weatherford, I had no idea. You know, when you talk about research for your books, it is just hard to imagine how much time it takes to put something together. So I was just looking at Little Black Sambo books and I didn't realize there were so many versions of Little Black Sambo. Right. It's it's, it's international. Yes, it was an obsession. Oh, little black Sambo who looked as though he came from the subcontinent of India. The little black Sambo who looked as though he came from from Africa. And so when we talked about the little Sambo books, an elderly gentleman came up to me and he said, you know, you have no idea how I felt as a little elementary school person because every day it seemed the teacher would pull out little black Sambo. And he said, I hated the book. I hated the book. So that image for that little boy was so, so painful because he thought everyone viewed him as little black Sambo. Perhaps he couldn't articulate to the teacher what he didn't like about little black Sambo looking unattractive, the mom and dad unattractive, and they're stirring things in a pot. But yes, those images are are so so powerful, number one. One of the things that I teach about in one of the units that I teach in my uh, children's literature class at Fayetteville State University is a censorship unit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we, one of the uh, books that we look at is Little Black Sambo and the various incarnations of it from the original one that was set in India to American versions. It was the original one was written by a British woman whose husband was stationed in colonial India. And then it, you know, crossed the Atlantic to the United States where the setting switched from Indian jungle to and to the American plantation. And then we get, you know, we get, we get the mammy, the mammy image of the mother. Mm-hmm. And so I, I ask my ki- my students to, you know, whether they think this, that it's acceptable or not. And you'd be surprised. And when I, when I taught a face-to-face class and used to take the various, uh, various Sambo books, some of the more acceptable recent versions of it, um, there's one that's set in India and there's another one that is, is set with animal characters by Julius Lester and J- it's illustrated by Jerry Pinckney. 
And that, and that's called Sam and the Tigers. So yes, they look at all yes. these different ones. And I said, well, should the, you know, should the original one be banned or, you know, these plantation images be banned? And so many black and white students said, no, it shouldn't. People should be able to read it if they want to. There's nothing wrong with it. They didn't, you know, they don't make the connection between that the images in that book and the the racist practices, the systemic racism that was put in place, you know, from this country's existence and which ran rampant during the Jim Crow era. They just don't, they don't get it. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, we do. And that's why you're writing where you, where you say to the world, the cultural heritage of African-Americans is important because it's our history, but it's also America's history. In terms of Little Black Sambo, I recall uh, one of uh, a fierce argument I had with a teammate at work was that she seemed to be obsessed with the Little Rascals. And for enrichment, she decided that the greatest idea ever was to show the film Little Rascals. Mm. And so, you know, a battle ensued and I I had to go through just a litany of reasons in terms of even though it has been revisited and the modern version isn't as negative, I just couldn't get her to understand why that would not be beneficial for children to see in an educational environment. I didn't want to sanction that. And I finally had to make a decision and just shut it down. It's just just nonsense at that point. Yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Well, I'm going to not shut it down. I am going to transition <laughs> okay. to uh, to something, but still staying uh, on point as far as what we're actually discussing. And my shifting uh, of direction, uh, Carol, has to do with your books or opportunities for family engagement. And, and certainly when you shared how you got started, right? You wrote your first poem and your mom read it and she suggested to your dad to have it printed and he has it printed and it's on index cards. So that's a true example of family engagement that got Carol started. However, in terms of what you have done since then, your focus has, at least based on what I've read, for the better part of what you've authored, been focused at children's books rather than adult books. What is it that you want children specifically to, to learn and why go in that direction as opposed to going into the adult reading direction? That's a good question. I, I start actually started out when I was writing as an adult, writing poetry for adults. And I had a manuscript that I had uh, developed, a poetry collection that I thought was for adults that I shopped, you know, I pitched to a few publishers. It didn't go anywhere. And after I had kids, I realized that there were a lot more multicultural or diverse books, as they're now called, for my children than there had been for me when I was growing up. And Mm. I I thought that there might be uh, some space for me to enter the children's book industry as as a poet, um, you know there are many more children's books of poetry that are published than there are adult books of poetry, and the children's books of poetry also sell more copies than, okay. than the adult. There's a very limited audience for adult poetry, unless you're you know Maya Angelou and you you know you write the inaugural poem, or you know you have you write other memoirs as well, or you are Amanda Gar- uh, Gorman mm-hmm. who you know writes writes the inaugural poem and then is, you know, catapulted to international fame. Right. But that doesn't happen for most poets. So there is more of a market for poetry for children. And also my 
my work tended to veer toward nonfiction. And so, you know, I, I kind of combined the two, combined nonfiction and poetry in my works in hybrid genre works. And it just, you know, I just was writing for writing the kinds of books that I wanted my children to have and that I wished there had been for me. And so I just, you know, I kept at kept at writing for children because I believe that children are a very important audience. And in fact, maybe the, maybe the most important audience. Mm -hmm. To be sure. There's books that I can remember reading sitting on the lap of my mom way back when that is still fresh in my mind. And one of them that comes to mind is Far Away Ports. She would work all day and, and then me do my homework. And this Far Away Ports book, in essence, was a book that basically took you from one port in one country to another port in another country to another port in another country. And my point in mentioning all of that is it, it touched on Africa. And the good news is it wasn't all about Sambos and, you know, savages in the jungle type stuff. But it did expose me at a very, a very early age to the whole international perception of, you know, who we are as a people, as human beings. So, you know, then when uh, when it came to coming across some of the images that you and Anita were talking about a moment ago, it sort of allowed me at least to find uh, a little bit more African-American space in that big picture of the world. So, um, yes, children's poetry and children's books. Uh, I'm glad that they sell as well as they do. And I'm yeah, glad poetry, that you certainly yeah. got into it. Yeah, poetry, I'm, I'm sure uh, Anita knows this as, a, as an educator, but poetry helps build fluency in terms of reading. So that, you know, there's that. Reading, of course, is a lifelong skill. It's a survival skill. To be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. I, I always tell aspiring writers and also students that you can be a reader and not be a writer, but it's impossible to be a writer and not be a reader. Mm. You must mm -hmm. read good writing in order to create good writing yourself. And then also when we have when we when children can access books that where where the characters or the subject matter connects to their own culture, it helps build their sense of identity and in so doing their sense of of confidence and self-esteem. Right. So if you so if they can read and they can write and they have that confidence, that that you know, sense of self, they they can go out into the world strong and do you know achieve what it is they want to achieve. Makes sense. Makes sense. So Makes and sense. and for some kids, you know, picture books. I, I write mainly, you know, primarily picture books. I I do write some young adult books as well, like Becoming Billie Holiday. But picture books are the only museum that some kids ever visit. Mm. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, books are, you know, it's not just about the words for children. It's about the images as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. I just love how, how when you speak, it just, it just conjures up so many images. I, I'm even reflecting back to your son's uh, coining of gallery of cool in terms of the gallery of the art on the, on the refrigerator. Um, and talking about family engagement. When when someone looks at your books and when someone takes the opportunity to read, I think I just want to make the plug that even though we're talking about young adults and we're talking about children, I want to focus on family engagement because in reading a book, the family learns too. There are so many individuals who don't have a connection to African-American culture in terms of its history because it wasn't taught in many instances. Right. So if you pick right. up Unspeakable, you have someone who is a child who may 
may be reading that book, but guess what? There's going to be someone who has their fingers on a keyboard trying to research the Tulsa race massacre. If you talk about Schomburg, for example, love, love, love that book. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Because because Schomburg did so much for African-American culture. I actually have the Dignity Justified Collection has etchings by Alexander Smith, who left the United States and moved to to Paris. And when he was struggling for for funds as an artist, it was actually Schomburg who said, why don't you just illustrate various individuals in African-American culture who have been significant in terms of making a change? And so we have Toussaint, we have Sojourner, we have, oh, the etchings are just beautiful. We have Frederick Douglass. So the Dignity Justified Collection owns some of those, not the the images that are in color, but the the etchings that, that one would have found in crisis magazines. So family engagement with these books, if you're talking about the roots of rap, there's someone in that household who can spit a rap or or share some information. If you're talking about blues, someone else will want to talk about Ella Fitzgerald. So it's just the legacy of learning. So I just, I love hearing the importance of, of reading and being fluent with words and understanding words, but bringing the family together so that people are more read and more informed. And that's just so important. Yeah, uh, and you know, often the, the adults in the lives of the children uh, who are reading the books might not know about these topics. Yes. You know, there are adults who may have just heard about the Tulsa Race Massacre because we weren't taught about it in school. Right. You know, there are adults who never heard of Schomburg or who never heard of Fannie Lou Hamer who are learning about this this individual or about the event right alongside the children. And 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 that includes teachers, you know. Mm-hmm. It's important these books are important, not just but not just the books that I write, but books by other people of color who are writing about their culture and trying to set the record straight and and present a more complete uh, history. These books are important because teachers can't teach what they don't know. Mm-hmm. They can't teach what they Tell were it. taught unless they Tell seek it. it unless they seek it out for themselves. And most of us were not taught these things. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's not they're not you know it's not in the curriculum. They're considered you know footnotes to history. That's what my work has been called sometimes, not by reviewers but by editors who didn't publish some things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so here's the truth. It's really important that you know adults and children share these books, and they're meant to not only spark conversations, but spark curiosity so that the young readers will want to get more and more and more information about either that subject or about the culture. Exactly. And so Dignity Justified focuses on illuminating images. And obviously images are important to you because your covers are are beautiful. So we've talked about Floyd Cooper, but you have a wealth of Maybe it's Kadir Nelson. Uh, when I look at the cover of, I think you have two Lena Horne books, but when I look at Lena, when I look at Freedom on the Menu, the Schomburg book, the artistic renderings are beautiful. And I love the connections. When we talk about education, we talk about literature, we're talking about social studies, but we're also talking about art. So my question is, as an author, do you have a say in how your literary works are pictured? Do you have a voice in that discussion at all? 
I am usually asked if I have, now that I'm at this stage in my career, early early on in my career, no, I didn't have any say. Now I am asked whether I have an artist in mind. That doesn't mean that that, that, that person will be the eventual illustrator, but that, you know, they, that means that the publisher may check with that person, to, that illustrator, to see if the illustrator has time. And they may, you know, they may consider that illustrator as they're looking at other illustrators. And then sometimes I put together packages with illustrators. That's most often the case with my son, Jeffrey Weatherford, who lives in High Point. We submitted You Can Fly the Tuskegee Airmen as a package and have other packages that we have shopped. He's now working on a project that'll be coming out, I think, next year. Sometimes I put together packages like that. That was the case with Unspeakable. Floyd Cooper and I put together a package. I had I had the idea and I asked him if he want, you know would be interested in illustrating it because I knew that he hailed from Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was also the case with By and By, Charles Albert Tinley, the father of gospel music. It's a biography of a gospel composer. And Brian Collier is the illustrator, and he hailed from the same area on Maryland's eastern shore as Tinley's, as Tinley hailed from. So I approached him. And that was the case also with Schomburg, but it worked the other way around. The illustrator asked me if I'd be willing to write a manuscript about Schomburg because he, oh. he was, he was Eric Velasquez, uh, who is my most frequent collaborator, is Afro Puerto Rican and was interested in doing a book about Schomburg. It works both ways, but often, most often, the publisher chooses the illustrator, but they do run samples by me before making the final decision. Well, uh, Carol and Anita, we've got a couple of minutes left. And I thought, Carol, we would open the mic up to you. So if you want to share a poem or give some advice to a writer or potential writer or uh, or after doing that, uh, sharing with the audience how we can find out what's next on the Carol Boston Weatherford horizon as far as projects. So uh, the mic is yours, Carol. All right. So uh, since I've been watching Aretha Genius biopic Mm -hmm. uh, on Hulu this week, I think I will read from my book, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul. Yay! So I'll just read a few of the spreads. V-O-I-C-E, Aretha's voice resounds with color and clarity. Spanning three plus octaves, the maestros all agree. G-R-O-O-V-E, Aretha finds her groove when she's rocking R&B. No woman of her time has more chart toppers than she. R-I-G-H-T, for the civil rights movement for racial equality, Aretha raises funds and gives concerts for free. Someday we'll all be free. G-R-E-A-T, Aretha's crowned as Queen of Soul, our own royalty. She wins awards and accolades and more than one degree. P-R-O-U-D, when the first black president is sworn into history, the queen rejoices with my country, tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty. H-U-M-B-L-E, Aretha tours her queendom from sea to shining sea. But in Detroit, down to earth, she's known just as Riri. Mm. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, the queen of soul, blessed us with a golden legacy. But she would probably call it the gift that God gave me. So that is from R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul, illustrated by Frank Morrison and winner of a Coretta Scott 
King Award for illustration. So that awesome. is one of my that awesome. that book came out in 2020. And the, my most recent book is called Dreams for a Daughter. It's illustrated by Brian Pinckney, and is, it is a companion to In Your Hands, which is a, also illustrated by Brian Pinckney. In Your Hands is a Black mother's prayer for her son, and Dreams for a Daughter are a mother's hopes for her daughter. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank I am just overwhelmed when you hear a poet read, when you hear an author read, their own voice is just so powerful and, and it's read the way we wish that we could read. Thank you for giving us a snippet of R-E-S-P-E-C-T by Carol Boston Weatherford. And I just hope that in terms of our listening audience, I don't know if we can emphasize it enough, but go out and, and get books, as, as Professor Weatherford said books written by African-American authors. You can find uh, anime and comics written by African-Americans, but find some of her books, find R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find The Roots of Rap, find Schomburg, The Man Who Built the Library, Freedom on the Menu, find Unspeakable, find Billy, find Lena, find these books. I don't even know. I think that would be a separate podcast just to list your books. Uh, but I am so honored and I am so appreciative. And we, we truly Thank you. Thank you so much, Calvin and Anita. And I just want to end on this note, Carol, out of all of what we have all said and heard, my hope is for the listening audience, you, you mentioned something significant, sparking conversation and curiosity. And I think that's one of our underlying goals for our Dignity Justified podcast. Whether or not you agree with what you heard, whether or not you even fully understand what you've heard, hopefully it sparks some conversation. And as you alluded to, some curiosity uh, so that you can take whatever it is that you've heard and, and make it work for you or make it work better for you. So thank you, Professor Weatherford, for having this conversation with Dignity Justified. We salute your contribution to our cultural heritage. And you can, in the listening audience, you can find out more about Professor Weatherford through her website, which is C as in Carol, B as in Boston, and then her name, Weatherford, W-E-A-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D.com. That's cbweatherford.com. And you can certainly find out more about Anita's initiative at Dignity Justified, just like it sounds, DignityJustified.com. Thank you all for listening. And thank you again, Dr. Weatherford, for being with us.